What's up, my fellow nerds? Thank you again for tuning in to Season 3 of the Nerds Who Live podcast. On this episode, I'm excited to welcome Mr. Yang Su Yu Yu Ren, a.k.a. on the Instas, Deadlift Panda. Yang Su is a deadlift specialist in all sense of the words, but he's also an all-around strong lifter, as well as he is an embodiment of a nerd who lifts. Because not only is he nerdy, and he shares my love of anime and comics, but he also is a nerd in the fact that he is, by trade and profession, a genetic scientist. He's an actual scientist, so he's an actual nerd, and he is a elite-level competitive powerlifter. So, the man does it all. He is as strong as he is smart. And he is as kind as he is strong. He's a great human being. We even got to train together before we did the interview at Convoy Strength in San Diego. So we got to do it face to face. So you're going to get to hear all the weights slam in the background. You're going to hear the music in the background. It was great. It was a great energy. It was really special for me because Convoy Strength in San Diego was the first gym where I properly learned to do the big three lifts for powerlifting. Um, it's also where I failed 315 for the first time, and then I got to take 320 for four sets of triples with you, you spotting me, and then we got to do an interview afterwards, so how fucking cool was that? So, I couldn't thank him enough, it was a great time, hope you guys enjoy it, I know I did, he really just learned us some school, um, just got to get to know him, what he does, his approach to lifting, what he has going on. And it was, it was just a lot of fun. That's what we do on the show. We have a lot of fun. So thank you guys. Shouts out to our sponsors, Viking Performance Chalk. Thank you guys for everything. Uh, we weren't able to really collect questions uh, for our Viking Grip It and Rip It question round for UU. Uh, it kind of just happened. And, um, you know, I couldn't pass it up. So I went down to San Diego, trained with them, did the interview. But... I try to get as many good questions in there for you guys as possible. Uh, shout out to our other sponsors, Calvert Illustrations, The Johnny Horror Show. Thank you guys. So, without further ado, face-to-face interview with Yang Su, Yu Yu Ren, The Deadlift Panda. And what's up again, nerds? Thank you for tuning in to the Nerds Who Live podcast. As always, I'm your host, Nicholas. And today, live from Convoy Strength down in San Diego, which was the first gym I learned uh, how to properly squat, bench, and deadlift, I'm with Mr. Deadlift Panda on the Instas, Yangsu Yu Yu Ren, and he's here with me. So thanks for coming on, man. Of course. My pleasure. So if you could, for those who maybe don't know you, give yourself a little bit of an introduction how you got started into lifting. And uh, explain why you are the ultimate, you know, lifting nerd because you're an actual <laughs> fucking scientist, um, genetic scientist, correct? Yes, uh, my PhD is in human genetics, and that's actually how I started lifting. Back when I was doing my PhD at University of Michigan, I pretty much got burnt out in a lab 24-7 every day. And when I just got bored in the afternoons, I would just skip over to the CCRB gym right across the street for like an hour or two in the afternoon. You know, they, the PI is usually not there. And so you get away, you do some lifting. And when I was there, I saw a bunch of people doing like squat, bench, deadlift. I had no idea what was going on, no idea what everybody was doing. I didn't even know how to do either of the motion at the point, so I started looking it up, found something called starting strength, which most people are more familiar than me with, kind of getified the program and made something that fit my schedule and then just started from there. And so once I finished my PhD and moved over to San Diego, I realized that this was an actual sport. I found people that were actually competing, doing these three motions. So I thought that was super cool. Met a bunch of guys over at World Gym that were doing it. Found some people that were doing competitions around here. Decided to jump into my first one. Just 
with my belt that I bought the week before in my like Adidas running shoes. Had no idea what was going on. Have you know like the what was that generic wrestling singlet that you get from Amazon that everybody wears, like the black single color one, ASIC one. Yeah, everybody has that. And went there, I think, I don't even know what I squatted, what I benched, but I just remember, like, I had a hell of a grind for a third deadlift, and it was, like, my first meet had, like, 640 deadlifts or something, and apparently that was good, and so I got drug tested, and I realized, well, this is super fun, like, the crowd is awesome, the everybody that's competing supportive as hell, and I love this community, so since then, I've been just competing, uh, it's been about three years since I started, and back in my first year, so I broke the national record for the deadlift with a 340 kilo, 750 pound deadlift. And since then, that's sort of how I earned and made up for my Instagram handle name, Deadlift Panda. And I've finished my postdoc since then. And my both my PhD and postdoc were sort of related to genetics. My PhD was more the metabolic side. My postdoc was more the psychiatry, the drug addiction genetics. And now I'm working on a biotech hopefully finding cures for um, inflammatory and autoimmune diseases. So actually saving the world <laughs> one autoimmune disease at a time. Um, and, I mean, so you went through your graduate, your postdoc, and you still have time to train and compete. <laughs> what did that look like? What did like a, a, like a school schedule, classes, and training look like? Yeah, so I, I think... Everyone tells me, including my girlfriend, that my approach, my view on science is completely rose-tinted and out of the norm because I had a good time during my PhD. Like, I loved it. It was a lot of fun. I did my PhD in human genetics, but also I did a dual master's program in um, applied statistics at the time. So I took sort of double the amount of classes. But even then, like... I had a lot of fun with it. I had time in the afternoons because I was also bioinformatics, so I had a lot of dry lab focus, so I didn't have to, you know, split cells, go in the lab to sort of sex the flies or sack a lot of mice. I didn't have to do the 24-7 thing that a lot of my other peers did. So I had a little bit more time in the afternoons, especially once my program is running. I can wait for a script to run for hours. I make an excuse to go out and train. So usually in my PhD, I did about, I think, Three times during the weekdays, in the afternoons, like two hours in the afternoon, one to three usually. And then in the weekends, maybe I'll do like an hour or two. But during then, I was more overall fitness approach focused. I did a lot of like sprint triathlon, cycling, rock climbing. So I was just all sorts of different like adrenaline junkie-ish. Um, and when I came to my postdoc here, I focused more on the powerlifting side. So then that's when I started doing the more three to four weeks uh three to four times a week doing like about two or three hours training each time with actual like try to do like a program focused i didn't really do much about programming so before i started working with jill static on tsa i had no idea what programming was i was just going in bench squat deadlifting once a week sort of just maxing out for people that knew me back then they saw like pretty much i was going in the gym no idea what i was doing maxing out squatting ass the grass with like no idea but somehow it worked i didn't get hurt and i learned a lot since working with joe and learned actually how to like squat and bench not just deadlift but my approach has been about the same usually about four times a week about three hours each time for the trainings wise nice and then it kind of just sounds like you uh <laughs> this kind of naturally fall into everything like yeah my postdoc <laughs> was fine school was fine training was mostly fine and i just kind of Uh, I mean, hey man, more power to you. And um, what was it like once you got on a program from just like intuitively training? Mm -hmm. What like what was that a challenge or what was that like for you? Or did you like it? Did you like having the structure? It was super different. I definitely liked it because then I can actually see my progression if I had a shitty week, if I had bad sleep, if I had bad diet, that affected everything, especially with the timing of the scheduling when I trained. Sometimes I did morning, sometimes I did evening, so that was hard to track. But actually getting onto a program with a real coach, he was focused more on the RPE side, so I can actually learn. I'm still terrible at gauging RPEs, but I can actually like you know take his word for it that this week moved a little better than last week at a low RPE. It's like, okay, well, that's good. And then once you see like the science come to it, like the period and seeing the progression and even if you're going not maxing out every week and you're still going to like sub max mode 
it feels good. You're not as wrecked, and your body can recover a lot better. You go through more the like different blocks before your training, and I can definitely see the science behind it. I can definitely see the um, advantages of having a peaking block, having the hypertrophy block separately, and that's definitely more of a scientific approach that I really, really enjoyed. Yeah, and it makes sense. And that's one thing that I've always liked following you is you are notorious for posting your little like you know like. You use science, like why you should get eight hours of sleep or why sleep is good for you. Um, what have some of the things that you feel from being, from like your science background and having that insight um, has helped your lifting? Like what are some mm-hmm. more science-based things that mm-hmm. you have nerded out <laughs> yeah for sure the biomechanics so for anybody that follows me on instagram they know that i post a lot about the sciences like you said uh i'm a huge nerd for all things genetics all things epigenetics all things metabolomics microbiomics but one of my favorite things is definitely the physiology the anatomy and the biomechanics differences between lifters so i post a lot about before between sumo conventional deadlifts between wide narrow stances between different types of grips all of it is completely individualistic so when you try to squat you try to deadlift and you're trying to copy someone else maybe your biggest um idol in powerlifting it's not necessarily going to translate one-to-one because you're just built completely different so just basically understanding that reading more papers looking at more of the studies about how each person's hip structure each person's bone structure height arm length everything comes into play with what optimal techniques can work for you best what doesn't work for you and why it doesn't or why it should like we're wearing flats versus heels things like that so everything comes into play and that's all completely science-based and i can't wait for the day when we start just doing scans on people before we even put them into like a powerlifting program to determine what optimal techniques they should use before we even start that would be really cool and <laughs> to kind of even add to that um my one of my buddies, his name's Ranson Lee of North Carolina. Uh, he's the one I told you about as the cool garage gym. He went <laughs> to a seminar with Yuri Belkin, mm. and Yuri um, got his uh, whatever the Russian equivalent of a degree, a bachelor's degree mm-hmm. in architecture. So his whole the whole technique segment of his seminar, Ranson was telling me, was all based on finding your body's, um, mm-hmm. I guess, optimal. Right. Um, Angles, yeah, like making them kind of basically look anatomically right. clean, right? And that's what he would, uh, that's kind of like what he bases everything off. He's like looking at you know somebody's body, <laughs> and if it looks off or the lines look off, mm-hmm. the technique is off for that person, right? And so it's kind of funny that kind of echoes, or it's like if it doesn't look <laughs> symmetrical, then it's right. probably not helping, or it's not right. right? And that's what people like Borshiko and have told many many times about like the russians especially are good at this they train in a way that's specific to their bodies their biomechanics optimally and that's why all their lifts look clean look easy even though it's not it's really close between a max and something that flies off the ground but if you look at something like buddy like yuri every single one of his lifts look like he could rep out more but the problem is He's doing it optimally to where his body can maximally do that in the most efficient way possible. And that's basically near the border of where he can do it, and he can't. So all of them are amazing at it. Like, Yuri's actually here in the U.S. right now. He's in my hometown, St. Louis, actually, at this point, looking at the going around the arch being a tourist. But, yeah. yeah. So he's just sort of the epitome of just a clean deadlifter. Every single one you look at is just like an art. And once you can perfect that according to how your body is built optimally, it's perfect it just looks amazing and it really is the best way you can move weight yeah and i think with him you know that was the other thing that he was telling me about uh ransom was telling me in your seminar is that he he stressed efficiency just like you said and he doesn't even like accessory work he just does more <laughs> back offs he's like they asked him he was like what do you do yeah. for accessories he's like i don't yep. I, just, I just do back offs <laughs> I just do more volume. Yeah. I'm like, how long is like a is your you know, squat workout? That it's like four <laughs> hours. It's like fuck, dude. Just squat for four hours. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my god! My yeah, my thirty-one-year-old shoulders and elbows definitely scream just hearing that. Yeah, like, oh my god, horrible. everything aches already. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, they're Russian. They're crazy. Yeah. Um, but I think there is something that I think um, I've heard. Really, I don't remember who said it. Um, I want to say it's uh, Austin Baraki, who's uh, barbell medicine. He's actually a doctor. He's a really great lifter as well. Um, he said most people aren't under uh, under trained. They're actually, I'm sorry, they're not overtrained. They're undertrained, mm-hmm. and they don't put enough time 
um, either into their warm-ups or mm-hmm. into even just looking back and trying to fix, the, fix their technique. They're just, mm-hmm. you know, they either get on a program or they hop off and they don't take time to really, like, break things apart. Yeah. And kind of nerd out on it and kind of and fine-tune it. Yeah. And that's the main thing. It's like, same thing with what I think Brett Contreras actually mentioned recently. It's like a really good quote. Same thing. Like, if you want to get better at squat, bench, deadlift, do those motions. Like, stop jumping around different programs. Stop trying different variations. The only way you're going to get stronger at that is just specificity and do those. You know, you, of course, you can address your weak points and do accessories and variations, but you need to continue to do the main motions. Like, that's what's going to get you stronger. Yeah, and I think that's always... What I hear from all everyone I've talked to, all, some of the best, they always say consistent, mm-hmm. be consistent, be patient. Yeah. And th- th- I mean, that's just every every single person. Like, yeah. They don't talk to each other and they all say the same thing. Yeah. And I think that speaks to the underlying principle. Like, consistency and specificity mm-hmm. will breed a specific adaption. Right. If you want that, you need to keep doing that. Yeah, and people are just oftentimes just just not patient enough to because it takes a long time for progression, and people think that they've reached their genetic limit when they know. I mean, I'm sure they know that there's so much more untapped strength there. Like everybody's genetic limit is way higher than what they expect, and just because something feels heavy doesn't mean that that's going to be your max in a year or two. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, and uh, I told you when I was you know, when I was here last year, <laughs> I really learned. I I failed at 315. Mm-hmm. My first meet, my third was was um was the once the 319 that i did today for four sets of triples Mm -hmm. and that was my first meet like third attempt yeah so it's like progression is there Mm -hmm. and it just takes patience and and i think being hungry and being (laughs) willing to ask questions and do that stuff um for you what is one thing that you wish people who started out like what you would see more beginners do like what would you like to see like just across the board what would you like to, if there are new lifters or intermediate mm-hmm. to do you think would be more beneficial to them and the sport also? Definitely fine-tuning technique first. Um, for me personally, I definitely missed out on a lot of that. I think that's what hindered my squat and bench progression the most in the beginning. And with deadlift, I sort of just powered through it and maxed out over time. And that worked for me to get stronger. But I know my squat and bench plateaued strongly before I started working with Joe, who taught me the actual techniques behind things. So if you're going to get into the sport powerlifting, for sure, work on the techniques. Um, I think just in the work is the most important part be willing to go into the gym consistently and especially if your coach or your program that you're following is saying do this and this and this don't skip out on it because that's gonna come into play strongly down the line and you're gonna only see the progression if you follow that but i mean if you're a newbie coming into the sport don't overthink it just go lift like in the end of the day you're only gonna progress if you put the work in so just don't be lazy about it don't hop around different programs if you find one great stick to it if you just want to be the build a baseline great build a baseline and then also jump into a competition as soon as you can i always suggest that because you learn so much just by being in the environment learning the cues seeing the different signals that the meets have the refs have different calls so if you're going to do do this sport jump into it as soon as you can and that's i think the biggest learning experience you can and you'll come back and take away so much from that and to put into your training and you'll meet people. Oh, you'll for sure. You'll probably meet some people who can obviously, like you said, help, give you advice, mm-hmm. or you might get some friends to train with, mm-hmm. which would be even more beneficial because you're yeah. not by yourself. Right. And that's the biggest part. It's like I thought that I was pretty strong before I went to there because I've only competed locally. I know nothing about it. And then I go to my first Raw Nats meet, and then, you know, there's Russell Orhey there. There's, like, Sean Norega there. And people that just make, like, all my lists look like jokes. So I was somehow made primetime the first time. I did Raw Nats, and I was the last to squat. Well, first to squat, first to bench, but last to deadlift because, you know, the numbers <laughs> are weird. <laughs> but just seeing that, it's like, yeah, there's people my body weight that can and move around crazy amount of squat crazy amount of bench weight that i never even dreamed of being possible so it's just things to put in perspective that you never see unless you go to a big meet like that and i think once you see it that tangibility the fact that it becomes that becomes mm-hmm. real yeah like that's a, it's not something you hear about you got to see it you mm-hmm. got to be there watch it happen <laughs> and then i think that just it's a new perspective like okay mm-hmm. that opens the world right into it a little bit and and really, like we said, you'll you'll meet people, and that opens up the doors. I mean, I think, I mean, just to be able to come here and talk to you, and we got to train beforehand, which is awesome. You know, it's like you that opens the doors, and then that 
you'll be able to experience so many other personalities and lifting types and just mm -hmm. by watching you learn. No. Um, so I do want to ask a little bit about you because we know about you the lifter, but we don't know, I, you know, I know you went to the University of Michigan and obviously you're a scientist, but you mentioned you're from St. Louis. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, so how did you come up and how did you, <laughs> yep. like, what from like little, you know, little you, you to <laughs> So um, I'm actually originally born in China. So I was born in Henan, China, um, in Zhengzhou and Xinjiang for people, my Chinese friends, they know where that is. It's like right down the great um, yellow river. And the only thing we're really known for is one, having 19 million people in our home province, and two, we have the Shaolin monks there. Um, so that's super cool. Uh, but I came to the US when I was seven in the middle of second grade. Literally, my mom came here when I was four and to do her sort of medical license again because she's a cardiovascular surgeon. So she had to do that before I, I, before she can bring me over. And then in the middle of second grade, my grandma just told me that you're moving to America. So it's like, I didn't know anything at the time. I didn't know English. I didn't know nothing. Came to the U.S. in the middle of St. Louis. Only Chinese, only Asian kid in my entire school. Didn't know any English. Had to communicate with like flashcards that had like Chinese on one side, English on the other side with questions like, hey, can I go to the bathroom in the middle of class? So I was obviously like completely culture shocked. And I didn't, I think after about three months, like you learn languages quick at a young age, but I think I tried to like run away from school three times before oh. I, that happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's a... So it it was fine, you know, it worked out, and then was I it fine? yeah, <laughs> was it? Um, yeah, <laughs> I I'm here today, um, but I got into sports a lot back when I was in middle school. Played like football, basketball, baseball, soccer, and that's what really got my like athletic background started. And then once I got to high school, I played football and did track and field for shot put and discus. I also did speech and debate to be a good little Asian kid, but you know, it bounces out. And I went, ended up going to college um, in the middle of nowhere in Kirksville, Missouri. So it's Truman State University. Um, I think I've only met one person out here uh, that's um, from that's actually heard of it and actually went to school there. Jordan Barbell Medicine. Um, he actually ended up going there too. But there's five thousand people in the entire school. There's Amish buggies coming down the street every day. Like you, the people go hang out at Walmart on Saturdays. Like that's what you did. So were you the only Asian kid there too? No, actually we had a couple Asian kids, okay. but you know there was uh, no, it went from like one to ten, so it actually went up. Um, but it was a good program. Like I went there for as a I started out pre med, so I thought I just wanted to do the whole medical school thing because you know my mom was a doctor, and that's what Asian kids do: doctor, lawyer, okay. one of the two. Um, but I realized that as more I got into the sciences, I was more interested in the research side like I was asking a lot of questions I wanted to know why things happen why for what reasons and how our bodies worked so I ended up doing a summer research internship in my junior year of college with a professor named Dr. Charles Singh over at the University of Michigan who worked with human um, hypertension studies in Copenhagen so he basically found genetic um, stability alleles to developing hypertension especially in a population that smokes and drinks a ton you had a lot of resistant people that never develop any heart issues so they were trying to figure out why and we end up fighting a ton of different loci that either if you have the alleles you're protected against developing hypertension if you didn't you're more susceptible so that really just opened my eyes to the potential of genetics and at the time it was maybe like late 2005, 2000, well, 2000, sorry, 2009, 2010. So the human genome had been mapped then, and then there was the reference genome already existed, so people were getting sequenced left and right. So we're doing a huge amount of next-gen sequencing studies with basically populations all over the world, and we're learning more and more about just disease susceptibility, and that's what I got really interested in. So I decided to go apply for... PhD programs and got into a couple decided for Michigan because they had a couple professors I really love to work with ended up doing my PhD with a doctor called Dr. Jun Lee uh, he worked with a lot of different um, GWAS studies with uh, in regard to bipolar disorders schizophrenia but also a really interesting study with rats that does uh, metabolic diseases and it was uh, basically a bi-directional study for high and low intensity running rats so rats that can run for like two hours on a treadmill super runners that have been selected for 30 generations for good running and rats are couch potatoes that run for five minutes and stop running so these two rats just aside from their ability to run diverted for a ton of other phenotypes like 
susceptibility to diabetes, to hypertension, to cardiovascular disease, to earlier death, um, all sorts of health indicators. So we wanted to figure out genetically what had been under selection that caused this because in a human population, you want to know that too. Like why does aerobic capacity, ability to perform exercise, correlate with better health? So we found a ton of different regions in the genome under selection. We did both RNA sequencing, whole genome sequencing, also some proteomics to figure out basically like a systems biology approach of what exactly was under selection that caused them to be healthier and more fit. And basically that was my PhD thesis that I threw, sort of threw together from scratch. And it was a lot of cool experience and I really, really enjoyed it. Well, you didn't throw it together. Well, <laughs> kind not, of. <laughs> That sounds a lot more yeah. together. You make it sound like I, st- I watched some <laughs> and I wrote a paper and they gave me a degree. I feel like it's more. Uh, if you ask my girlfriend, that's pretty much how it happened. Like things just kind of fell together in place and five years later I have a degree and it yeah, was really fun. It's like my first yeah. date. I did the 600 <laughs> I, I'm the Asian Superman. It's cool. It's fine. It's fine. We don't hate you at all. It's fine. Um, but it's, it's, fascin- it's fascinating. So what did you, what was the, I'm curious, what was the findings? Like, what, or maybe one or two, what were mm-hmm. those findings that you found in your thesis on why the aerobic capacity right. led to better health? So, it's actually really cool, and it comes down to your mitochondrial function. So, your mitochondria, you know, powerhouse of the, s- the cell, you it uh, takes in glucose, it takes in fats, it takes in uh, lipids, it's energy, and you basically oxidize those into ATP and it allows you to exercise and perform physical functions. And the high runners, they can oxidize both lipids and glucose as energy. So then when they're exercising, they can basically use those to generate ATP and replenish the ATP and glycogen within your liver and within their muscles as you exercise. But the low runners who are basically um, couch potatoes, higher fat content, everything, after they oxidize all their glucose, they can't tap into their lipid storage for energy. And so they basically just bunk out and go exhausted so you can see that even though they have much higher body fat and visceral fat content they can't use any of that for energy so it's essentially a selection of um, the uh, mitochondrial function and how um, efficiently they can use these different fuel sources as energy while you exercise and that in turn actually gives them more advantage even just at a resting rate of being healthier and constantly using more energy efficiently as opposed to the lower the bad runners who basically just sit around not burning any of their energy not burning fats not burning glucoses and just basically they're happier they're actually very very tame and they're glad to be around we donate them to like elementary schools as pets because they're very like low energy and they are happy just sitting around but they're live less long and they just in general less healthy than the higher running rats so did you find so i mean that kind of i feel like that translates to a human population where if you have a lower activity level you don't get to tap in your mm-hmm. lipids which of course right. most people which is which should be their fat content which would be obviously their aesthetics mm-hmm. so did you guys find is there a way to, to be able to tap in to so their fat content this is an intrinsic genetic difference so they weren't trained at all throughout their lives they were only run on the treadmill once so basically this is an intrinsic genetic difference due to their genetic background that allows them to more efficiently use different fuel in the high running rats so this is basically something like if you did a human study where you took a population of runners well a population of humans and just ran them selected 100 people took the best runners in highest popu- like in that one population keep breeding them over many generations you'll sort of get the same phenotype of course you can't really selectively breed humans that's frowned upon but <laughs> we- only in some cultures yeah only some cultures <laughs> <laughs> they tried that once I think didn't work out too well no it did not yeah but uh, at the end of the day, it's like this is the sort of thing that a lot of people are trying to mimic with drugs and with uh, different uh, inhibitors and with uh, CRISPR, potential CRISPR uh, DNA transgenes in the future. And they're hoping to tap into some of these promoters that we found. Actually, so in the mitochondria, all the, most of the proteins that are produced, all the mitochondrial genes are actually in your nuclear DNA. So basically, you have your nuclear DNA within your body was 3.7 gigabases long of base pairs, just ACGTs. But then you also have a separate little organism, which is the mitochondria, and it has its own DNA as well, which is a circular DNA. And it's sort of this coevolution that we have 
early many many like billions of years ago that happened and now we have this little foreign DNA that coexists with our own DNA and there's a lot of crosstalk between the two and the mitochondria function mostly is actually encoded by genes that have um, coming from our own nuclear DNA. So most of these genes that are affecting the function that I talked about before are coming from our own DNA and those are affected by different mutations and promoters and enhancer regions that we actually found. There's a couple of genes of interest, ones like ACAT-SB, which uh, promotes um, branching amino acid degradation and oxidation. So that's one of the one genes that are particularly under selection in our population of high runners. So if you can generate a CRISPR model of some kind of or transgene and you can promote the gene expression in humans, you can potentially do the same thing and give you those kind of metabolic benefits that the rats saw. So definitely down the road, once, you know, human... A genetic manipulation is less frowned upon, you know, <laughs> not just those two HIV babies in China. Yeah. Hopefully in the future we'll see something like that. Yeah, hopefully. I mean, it's so fascinating, the idea that you can be able to, you know, help, you know, find a genetic selection where people are just more, mm-hmm. it sounds like more energy efficient, essentially, where you're mm-hmm. able to tap into the glucose and the lipid, lipids, even at a resting rate. Yeah. Uh, which then would... I mean, we see those all the time, actually. So in a lot of different populations, um, in humans, they study bidirectional selection all the time, sort of in, like, the, some Kenyan runners. Like, they're selected to run more efficiently because that's just the habitat, the population. And then you have altitude, different adaptations in the higher climate people um, that basically adapted to less oxygen content. And then you have the people that are taller in some populations. All those are different, basically, populations that have been under genetic selection. And a lot of different studies, you can look up all the papers for them, have also found the same kind of selection markers by looking at, like, runs of homozygosity that have been fixed in a genome or for, like, high different FST values between normal person and the selected person. So you can find all these different targets. And in the day, it's just basically how to manipulate the regions in the genome to give us the same kind of health advantages that we know gives um, those populations that have been under selection. It's so cool. Like, and it just had, I mean, it's a little understanding. Like, it's not like <laughs> eventually there'll be so much possibilities that will come with that kind mm-hmm. of work. So, that's, that, that's exciting. <laughs> uh, okay, so before we probably, everyone loses in the science <laughs> talk, which I think is fascinating, but I'm sure it's like, it's probably a lot to digest. And they can rewind and listen to it. <laughs> um, what is, I wanted to, and now I'm digesting all that science talk in my head and I like, lost my train of thought to some degree. Um, what is some of the things, you know, in training that, and I kind of, kind of like what I said earlier about in your science background that you like to apply to training, what are some of the things that you have found have helped you in terms of competing as a, as a, uh, as a competitor? When you compete, what are some things that, you know, you've noticed as like trends or maybe maybe even just in certain like competitors and maybe in their genetic type that you know that you find interesting just kind of like your view as a scientist to the sport mm-hmm. let's see I hope that question makes sense in my head it makes sense <laughs> Yeah, so basically from just given my genetic uh, science interest and background, what do I observe in a competition? competition, Yeah, so like the biomechanics thing for sure before I talked about, like especially what makes some people do better in a closer stance squat, for example, versus like a wider stance, like David Wilson style versus like Marcinda style. Like how does that work? Why are when you think about it like you i sort of get like an x-ray vision of just their hip socket you know it's kind of weird but that's where i naturally gravitate to is like how are they built and that they can both hit depth and both strongly just move the weight like that completely differently but with completely different anatomies and also how somebody like Russell moves so much weight with a conventional deadlift versus somebody with like Sean that goes com- max width and basically pulling the same amount of weight there like it's I love thinking about that I love watching people I love just analyzing that sometimes I'll put down like you know some diagrams on bar path to see what's different from the side from the front when these people are competing and also especially like bench when i see like the japanese lifters and they are going max with and crazy amount of weight and also somebody like sean who can have the mobility to move the weight he does in a bench press versus somebody else with a much closer grip like all those things are just 
the most fascinating thing to me. And at the end of the day, like what we were talking about before, I just hope that we can have a scan one day to see like exactly the anthropomorphic studies that can come down to like giving what the optimal lifting method for each of the lift is for everybody. That would, ah, that would, it would be cool. If you were to set up like your own like study, like if you were just given the okay to like take actual lifters and, and, and let's say you didn't have the ability to like just to scan them, like how would you set that up? Like what would you <laughs> set up to see? I've tried that actually. So if you go on my like Instagram, I still have the link up there. Uh, I don't think there's too many submissions, but I asked, it was a survey for anthropomorphic measurements of, for example, your arm length, your leg length, your torso length, your... Uh, distance of from the bench to your back when you're arched up all those different measurements that people that have studied powerlifting have been looking at and have showed significant amount of difference between elite lifters and different levels of lifting I want to get a large enough sample size hopefully one day and I know surveys a little gray area of whether or not it's accurate but if I can get you know next time you go to go to Ron Nats maybe in Lombard show up with the measuring tape and measure everybody's different arms and different legs and everything I think we could get a pretty good study of just comparison and correlation between each of the different lifts how they lift and whether it's the most efficient for them or not that's that's really cool no I didn't know you had that so would you have have them as so you take the measurements would you have them also submit like i pull conventional like, yeah squat, yeah this and this mm-hmm. would you also measure like their like feet width for like mm-hmm. their, yep. their yeah. squat and all that too yeah, yeah. oh Dude, they should, should do that <laughs> that'd be fun as fuck i think yeah. everyone would be curious mm-hmm. like of like where they like where they stand and like where i don't know like i would like i, yeah. I want to know where that shit is yeah um yeah no i'm a draft person so it's just like i'm all <laughs> yeah yeah uh, Yes, I mean, at the end of the day, though, it comes down to really personal preference for lifting. Because, for example, like, you have long-ass legs. I could I could tell you that you should be squatting max width. You should be deadlifting sumo max width. But if you don't like it and if it's not how you like to train, I, I mean, we don't force you to do anything, like, in powerlifting. So I think it comes down to personal preference. I think we can tell everybody what their optimal method of lifting could be like stand with your feet 60 inches apart with your back arched up like 20 degrees something like that but really it's going to come down to your personal preference and i think it'll be nice to have that tool one day to be able to tell everybody that based on your own anthropomorphic measures we're going to get a lot of sample need a lot of sample sizes for that to do a regression for but it's definitely doable, but it, as long as, you know, if you're not going for the world records, I think you just need to have fun with it. And yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. And then, because, like, like, for me, like, in terms of, so I, I began um, when I started uh, squatting wider with the toes much more flared out and also in heels. And then I also pulled sumo, and I was horribly inefficient. And so I brought my feet in a little bit, and I'm very flexible in the hips, especially with that extra space in my mm-hmm. hip socket. Um, and I did low bar still, but I, I got I had more, mm-hmm. more control, more balance. Yeah. Um, and then with the sumo, I was relatively good, and I could and I'm flexible, so I could get wide and I could mm-hmm. get pretty deep, but I didn't have the same um, like leverage against the bar. Like right. I couldn't quite leverage it in the same. Um, I still did it for a while, and then I'm. When I switched back to conventional, it helped my conventional, which then looked more natural. And then mm-hmm. in my head, I just pulled like a sumo. Like I spread the floor, like mm-hmm. I do everything in my head the same. Yeah. I just different position. Yeah. Um, and then it, it just it looks more natural. So yeah. It's like all right, well, I'll just I'll do it. So I think there are, it's always weird like what outliers come. No. Um, how much of a sample size like, would you ideally need? For, like, how many? <laughs> would yeah. You need? So if we're talking about like an actual power calculation, you need to know like the variance between the different measurements. But I would say gut feeling probably 500 to 1,000 people, maybe at least. Um, but that's also for sex differences too, because, you know, men and women generally are completely different in terms of anthropomorphic measures. So ideally 500 for each sex and at probably a group for each body weight be- and height because that's going to affect that too. So, yeah, it might take a couple years to collect it, but yeah, eventually, yeah. if I, you know, get enough funds and we can 
get a sample size enough going, I'll throw out an official study for that. That would be. I see. I think you should just have like talk to raw nats. Like, every <laughs> like, every lifter that like, yeah. submits a form, have yeah. them do their measurements yeah. with their form, and you yeah. have it all. And also, you know, if we can get that at the same time, I would love to get some blood samples. Like, I don't want to poke and prod you guys too much, <laughs> but if we can measure like you know hormone levels at that too and see how that correlates, it like that would be a really really cool study. That I would love to do. Yeah, I mean. USAPL is a drug. I mean, yeah, exactly. Test, like, yeah. Get the pee? Yeah. I mean, I as a geneticist, I would love to do the genetic study as that too. Just find, like, you know, the strength markers because there's, like, I don't So I posted this a couple times, but there's a couple studies that have been finding, um, collecting more and more uh, genetic markers of basically sports performance. And it ranges between endurance running, strength training, um, all down the gauntlet. And now there's a couple of thousand genetic markers that basically contribute to whether or not you'll perform well in sports so eventually the idea is that you know it's sad as it is when you're born you'll be genotyped that's going to be soon everybody's going to have their entire sequence on a flash drive the second they're born uh, it's super cheap nowadays you can get your entire genome sequence for a couple hundred dollars um but it's kind of weird too yeah oh yeah it's cool i, I mean i personally love it i know and everybody might not be great like welcome to the idea but I personally think it's great, especially for disease predictions and prognosis. Um, but for sports-wise, eventually we can basically predict the potential of becoming like an elite athlete in certain sports, if you, depending on how predictive the markers are. Because right now it's only explaining for a very small popul- like variation in performance, maybe a couple percent. But eventually if we find enough high um, penetrance alleles, maybe we'll be able to predict that a lot better. So if we get the allometric um, anthropomorphic measurements compared to the genetic measurements, and then at the end of the day, we can basically find like what predicts a super athlete in powerlifting. Which would be really cool. Mm-hmm. Now, ethical question for you, though. <laughs> would you tell, like, let's say you get all of those measurements and you're able to predict like you know this kid will be a super athlete (laughs) this kid won't would you tell them that or would you allow them kind of the freedom to kind of just go about it themselves Uh, yeah good question Um, I personally would like I personally would love to know if I'm gonna succeed at for example like if I'm gonna be the best at powerlifting compared to like rock climbing or cycling like that would be great to know Um, but only if I'm doing that as like a career or something that I'm going to be investing basically a significant chunk of my time and interest in for my life. If it's just like a hobby or something, yeah, I'm just let me have fun with it. But if it's, I can see the utilization and it might be a little overused in like countries that might, you know, put more funds towards those people. You know, I know China does that. I know Russia does that. If from the young age, if you're not good at something they'll pull you out of the program and they won't give you funding so i can definitely see a potential being overused but at the same time if it will sort of help you predict whether or not you'll succeed in this sport that you're planning on putting a lot of time and money into i think it could be useful yeah i could see it be useful i just wonder if like like for me i was always so like when i started wanting to come you know found powerlifting as an outlet I was always told you should probably not do that. <laughs> you're you're not natural for it. Uh, maybe you should do triathlons. For some reason, everyone fucking told me to do triathlons, and I, it started to annoy me. I was like, "Fuck off! I'll try." Um, do you think if you you know you tell them you know one thing that they're just gonna be like, "No, nah, fuck you! I'm gonna do it." <laughs> yeah, I mean, I did. Yeah, I think definitely a lot of people will say that, and you know, more power to them. I. Personally, I think more information is better. Like, I know one of the ethical dilemma is if you have gotten your genotype done and you have the variants that predict for Alzheimer's, do you want to know that? You know, like, the, a lot of people don't. Even top scientists don't want to know if they'll develop Alzheimer's. And even though the risk is only predicting for, like, 30% chance, saying, like, you'll have 30% chance of developing Alzheimer's by, like, age 60, a lot of people still won't know that. But I personally would be welcome to know anything. Like. Right. And I mean, not. I mean, I, I would agree. Also, I'd want to know because I feel like then if I know, I can have control over it, mm-hmm. or I could make the decision to either try to prevent or mm-hmm. or just you know just be ahead of it as much as possible, if right. possible mm-hmm. at all. Um, <laughs> so I mean, that's just me. 
23andMe actually has a couple of studies right now. So if you do genotyping, there's Ancestry.com, there's 23andMe, there's a bunch of different companies that'll give you a spit kit and they'll genotype all your basic DNA against the SNP chip they have, gives you a couple hundred thousand SNPs to compare against. And they'll not only tell your ancestry, basically where you're from, it's not really that informative because, you know, I'm mostly Chinese. It's, you know, you're probably mostly your East European, some sort. But, yeah. 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 So... The cool thing is you can do the basically like health predictors and they'll tell you, you know, your chances of developing like type 2 diabetes or hypertension or cardiovascular disease, certain types of cancers and whatever is in the database. So that kind of stuff is really, really cool to me. And I think in in the day, um, well, soon those probably markers are going to also be predictive of your athletic abilities once those studies have been more fine-tuned. And so once you do those kind of spit kits and get that information back, you're immediately going to know pretty much like as much as you can about yourself and your potentials, both good and bad, like health risk and potential of doing certain activities. You know, it's more information. It's the information age. Yeah, it is the information age. It is really what you do with it. And I think sometimes, you know, People are scared of that. Like mm. They don't know. I think it comes down to like, it's like, okay, if we get those markers, we learn our risk for the bad, mm-hmm. what do you do about it? Yeah. Because I think that's another thing. People want to know like what comes next. Right. So, like, if so, let's say someone gets that, they get their, they see their risk of, you know, what what those are, what would be their next step of like dealing with that? <laughs> yeah. It's like you're young, yeah. you get it, it says you have a less than 23% chance of developing mm-hmm. cancer Alzheimer's. Like, is that just something that you kind of just accept or are there actual like proactive steps oh, yeah. that you can go further with? So this is exactly why we have uh, a new sort of new-ish job field called genetic counseling. I have a lot of friends in that program, and we had a, basically a joint program with my PhD program, a genetic counseling master's program at the University of Michigan. And basically their job, uh, they basically know as much as us PhDs do about genetics, is explaining what that means to you. For example, 20% developing Alzheimer's, exactly what that means, what studies show that, what genetic backgrounds, like populations have that allele show the effect. And also just basically what you can do about it. Like, for example, you know, something like Alzheimer's is a little more difficult. Like, there's not much known about how you can potentially increase your chances of not getting it. Um, there's certain activities you can do, antioxidants, things like that. But for other more treatable ones, for example, increased chances of developing type 2 diabetes, you can definitely shift your lifestyle around to sort of mitigate that. And also other cardiovascular diseases, maybe lung cancers. If you're more susceptible to that, don't smoke. Um, but they'll basically go through your entire genetic background that comes out from their readouts and explain to you exactly what the health implications are, what you can do about it, and things that you can shift your lifestyle around to basically increase your chance of not getting the poor health indicators. That's cool. I didn't know that. So Mm -hmm. I think that's something people should know. It's like, if you do know, then... There's someone you can talk to. Every hospital now is required to have a genetic counselor, especially if they do any kind of genotyping. So, see, you didn't know that either. <laughs> but that's cool. Yeah. That's cool to know. Yeah. All right. So now we now we learn. Yeah. Okay. So let's shift back back to the lifting because it's, it's <laughs> fascinating. But I'm sure people are like, we want to hear about him lifting. Um, you did say you're you're not doing knots this year. Mm-hmm. So bummer. But for <laughs> yep. us, I mean, for you, you're probably chilling. Um, when um, so what does that look like for you in your off season right now and why you kind of told me when we were training but for them mm-hmm. um, and then uh, when when would you like to compete again yeah so the main reason right now I'm not doing Ron S this year is um, two reasons one I started a new job at a biotech company like I mentioned before and I'm going to be focusing more of my attention towards you know getting making a good impression the first year so uh, the job is great uh, it's a lot of work but I'm having a really good time doing the sciences there um, but it does give me more of a a busy schedule especially with things both at work and at home so I've been training more at a commercial gym recently as you can see probably from some of my videos playing around with the giant bumper plates the Lake bar and yeah. out in the AstroTurf looking like I deadlift in a soccer field yeah, yeah it, looks like, it looks pretty <laughs> epic though it looks like you're at home but yeah. Hey man, you pulled the 815 on that. Yeah. So, yeah. On the so, worst conditions. Yeah. So I mean, my really my main goal right now for the off season is just one 
focus more on the job and to you know get as strong as I can just do more of the off-season work because one of the main issues I've been dealing with for the last two years is uh, sciatica that's been recurrent every time we put low bar squats back in so the folding action is just pinches my lower nerves every time and it sh- causes just chronic shooting pains down my right leg and a numb big toe so I know it's there I know what's causing it now and so I'm exclusively switching over to high bar squats and strengthening my core and lower back more and posterior chain which all help with sciatica so both of those things the job and the sciatica sort of just give me more of an insight into why i should be taking the rest of the year off and then i'll be coming back in early 2020 and hopefully doing more meets then yeah which would be cool and like you said you've been going for like three years yeah so <laughs> yeah time off is probably not bad yeah it's a good time to take a break you know yeah. rest the body a bit and I am not as young as before, so... I mean, you're not old. You're, what, 31? 31, yeah. It's not... I'm almost 30. Like, that's not... We're not old. Don't tell me that. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, old. we don't recover as well as a 21-year-old anymore. No, we don't. <laughs> that's true. But you know what? They don't know what they're doing either, mm-hmm. so... That's true. That's true. Out. We're it, experienced. It, we're experienced. Seasoned. Seasoned, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, so... You know, you're in this off-season, so what does your off-season look like? And then when you're, you know, what are, what are you doing for fun, like just in general for life? Yeah, so right now, um, really uh, for pro- lifting-wise, I'm lifting four times a week. I'm usually just deadlift and squat each twice a week and bench each every single day four times a week and then doing a lot of accessory work because you know commercial gym is pretty great for that um if you need to just focus on just strengthening the smaller muscle groups uh outside of work uh, i lead a hike and brew meetup group which we go every now every two weeks go i take people on a big hike around san diego and then we go to a a tour a new brewery afterwards and you know usually end up getting a ton of new people every time so it's a good way to meet people and you go on i go on hikes anyway is that what that is yeah I've seen that. yeah I that's great wondering, like, you should come it's fun do. yeah yeah, I'm down here, I'm yeah. Down. there's one uh i think we just went on one last weekend and a bunch of people came we end up going to a blue sky ecological preserve and we did a hike and we went to Savage Wood Brewing afterwards, and then on uh, September 7th, I'm doing a hike up South Fortuna, and then we're going to Pure Project and Amplified Ale. So San Diego is great. If you love beer, there's 170 breweries in the county itself, so I'm still trying to work through everything. It's pretty hard, but being a beer fanatic and a hiking fanatic, like this is just like... I, my passion outside of lifting and work. Right. How, do, how, how does that, is the beer and the lifting? <laughs> Great. Well, I mean, yesterday, um, the pre-workout was beer, so it's, <laughs> yeah, um, it sometimes works better than others, but I personally, I love it. I used to homebrew a lot at home, and I personally love trying out different beers and breweries all the time, so usually the brewery days and the workout days don't fall on the same time and same days. That's smart. Yeah, That's smart. but they balance out. You know, you got to have some balance in your life. Like you I, Yeah. It's true. So what is your current favorite beer or favorite brewery? <laughs> so both of those are, let's see, I was going to say... Alesmith and the 394 Pale Ale because that's my solid go-to or the Speedway Stout depending on if you're a Pale Ale person or a Stout person. I, I like Stouts. So oh like yeah. Dark. I either like really really light refreshing mm-hmm. or like really dark. I oh yeah. Really like in between. Those two are my favorites in San Diego, but being you know i have to have some allegiance to michigan michigan's also a great state for beers uh, not quite as many as here but they have some great breweries um i was just talking to a couple friends about new holland um, dragon's milk they it's one of my favorites it's aged in bourbon barrel that's my dad's favorite beer so good Sh- so good not. yeah we have uh, six bottles in my fridge <laughs> right now just yep. for my dad. That was great. And then the Founders Kentucky Breakfast Stout. I love KBS. I love that. I just got a bottle of that this week. I found it here. It was amazing. You know, you have to dish out like 10 bucks for a single bottle, but it's worth it. Like, I love those. Just, I used to go to the Summer Beer Festival in Ann Arbor in downtown Ipsy every year. It was just like the best thing ever. Oh, that sounds like fun. Mm-hmm. That sounds like a good time. Um, <laughs> what about... Uh, you know, just to get really, really nerdy, because you're a nerd like me, and only that you're an anime nerd like <laughs> oh, me. Oh, yes. So, uh, current uh, favorite anime, current favorite <laughs> movie of any kind, whether it's live action or it's animated, whatever. Uh huh. Let's see. Anime, so I've, I'm back in the dark ages of anime before there was all this like crunchy roll and streamed everything. So I grew up in China with 
Dragon Ball, and that was like the first manga I read. I had all the books. So actually, when I moved to America from China, I brought two giant boxes, all my manga. Every time I used to go back to China, I would buy like just all these like 10 pounds of books just to bring back. And they're stored somewhere, I hope, back home. But uh, I hope. Uh, but I, I grew up with all these cl- good, great classics. But I think some of my favorites, you know, the timeless ones, Full Metal Alchemist, you know, yes. Bro- Brotherhood, because that, that sticks to the manga. The original anime, the ending was trash. The yeah. Nazi movie was trash. Yeah. Brotherhood's great. If you haven't watched anime or if you have a friend that's not into anime, show them that, especially if they're nerdy. Like, the chemistry, the alchemy side is amazing. Yeah. It's nerdy as hell. I love it. Um, but the classics, you know, like Cowboy Bebop, Trigun, um, of course, Dragon Ball, all those I love. Like, I'll watch those constantly over and over. And I love cooking animes, like, you know, cooking shows. Some of the, let's see, there's the Yakitaki Japan, which is like a baking one. I, I'm like a leisure chef on the side. I love cooking everything possible. I, I yeah. love your cooking <laughs> shit. I, I also love cooking. I yeah. watch Cooking Channel. My yeah. family owned a restaurant when oh, I nice. grew up, like yes. a diner. Um, and then obviously I'm a Sicilian and Greek family, <laughs> so they all cook. So I, I fucking love cooking. I love your shit. One of my favorites is when you did your pineapple fried rice inside the pineapple. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, I got that idea from Jamar, you know. Pancake God, he's always got to show, like, all the pretty pancakes, and he's got some fried rice going on. I was like, I got to be a little extra this time, oh, and, yeah. like, you know, match his uh, extraness. I know, so like, that was like, good. It served in the pineapple. I thought yeah. it was pimp as hell. <laughs> like, I thought that was so rad. And then, like, I saw you, like, shared your girlfriend's story, yeah. and he yeah. thought, you're like, oh, you used being extra. I was like, I want that extra. That's yeah. the shit I want. See, I was the guy back in college, we would just go out drinking, and I come home and find whatever is in the fridge, and I cook for all my friends. Like, we did rice pilaf, filet mignon and like whole chickens we would yeah. do like entire chicken stock and make that until like 2 a.m and stay up cooking and eating like after drinking it was just the best time ever oh i, I love that so i have to ask because like I, I i really love chinese food like, really good <laughs> so how is how is your chinese food <laughs> oh, i love it i love it i mean i so i learned chinese food cooking from my mom and of course they teach chinese cooking without measurements just by feel so i grew up watching her cook and that's like every time she comes to visit i learn like a new dish from her so now i finally learn you know how to make the braised pork how to make the mapo tofu how to make you know the classics like uh eggplants and just the traditional chinese stuff that you don't get anywhere else unless you go to chinese restaurant with your asian friends and have them order for you like they will not give you like they will not give you anything they won't give you chopsticks or they won't give you like a real menu unless you go with somebody with some cred yeah you need some cred asian cred take me i want cred because i want i want food what's what's like one dish that like someone should try it's like a not typical thing that someone, if you don't know, oh, yeah. you should try. Like, yeah. what, if you like Asian food, uh-huh. Chinese, like, what should you try? Oh. You probably don't know you should try. So there's a couple. Um, if you like seafood, so go to a Szechuan restaurant that's really good and get the... So just... It's basically like it's English name is kind of weird. It's like maybe like white fish, like Szechuan style, but yupian. It's like suala yupian in Chinese, and it's basically just comes out pieces of fish in covered in chili oils and chili peppers falls off everything it just melts in your mouth so good oh. and if you like more of the red meats um ball. so it's basically like beef tendons that's been slow cooked in like a ceramic pot for Ooh. hours and it just literally it's like butter melting your mouth it's so good the good beef tendon yeah is, is amazing. oh yeah and the szechuan people know how to do it like i love and go to hot pot like experience hot pot once in your life oh. cook and eat from the same pot with all your friends get like the half and half the spicy side the regular soup stock side both are going to be drenched red eventually but just get everything all the lamb all the beef all the pork all the shrimp balls everything is there a good place here in san diego for that a little sheep so i grew up in china in henan where we had the original little sheep and it's no literally shit. it's called little sheep in, in chinese it's called xiaofei yang so in chinese it's called like little fat sheep but i guess in america it's a little offensive to say the fat part so now they just call it a little sheep <laughs> so there's one here in san diego i know there's ones all over california but go to little sheep go all you can eat the all you can eat a uh, hot pot and just you won't regret it oh dude <laughs> that sounds good we need to yeah. do that next time yeah, yeah. Do that i'm getting hungry yeah, yeah for sure oh, I'm, I'm so hungry i'm <laughs> so hungry right now that's probably why i'm talking about food. yeah um, so with I actually had I remember 
I think it was last year. I saw that some people came from China and they trained with you. Oh, yeah. Is there like a, a powerlifting community kind of coming up? So here? it's growing. Um, as you know, in China is known for Olympic weightlifting. Yeah. Um, but now there's actually a small scene of powerlifting growing there. And one of my good friends there, Bing Chen, he's actually came to visit me here. And, you know, he made a cross-California trip. And a couple of people that actually... Uh, coached by him in America came as well and we came he, they came down the convoy we trained together and it was the first time I met him because I've been talking I basically talked to him regularly constantly about coaching programming and about different like methods of lifting online and we've basically just met through Instagram and he's not too far from my hometown and he is he speaks Chinese exclusively so we communicate with each other in Chinese and basically he's explained to me that the community there is growing the problem is they don't have really many ex- people with experience with coaching with programming with anything of that so it's a lot of people that just kind of watch Instagram people in America and learn that way but the problem is they don't really have any people that's fluent in Mandarin in Chinese teaching them so he's one of the main powerlifting coaches there in China he has a huge team and following there but he's trying to pick up basically more experience and more coaches that's experienced in powerlifting but on the America side which has a lot more of the experience with the sport so it's up and growing um, there's a lot of support from the government right now with powerlifting because they hopefully you know want to send athletes out to people through uh, federations like IPF to compete but it's definitely an up-and-coming scene so I love it like I personally love seeing more and more people from my home country like compete there and I get messages all the time in Chinese asking for advice and I love responding to them That's so it's awesome. great dude hey I mean any any excuse to go there if you want yeah I'll come I know I mean, like, we'll come, let's come let's go, live <laughs> go eat lift let's and go eat, eat like, live, like yep. you that's, that's all I, I mean when I, I started in martial arts so mm-hmm. that was like my background so when I, did, <laughs> I always wanted to go and like go train and eat in China like, hey come to my hometown do. we'll do a Shaolin temple we'll learn yep like, exactly yeah, temple, like, <laughs> like, I want to do that whole thing yep and just like stuff my face yep no, it's amazing yeah I haven't gone back to China actually since 2006 so I know a lot have changed and I need to make a trip back like yeah. it's it's amazing there it grows super fast oh I'm, I'm sure like it is it's such a huge country mm-hmm. huge population and I feel like it's so adaptable mm-hmm. like it just like every time they get something new they just like yep in yeah, so we should make a trip there. Let's go. I'm down. Let's go. I'm ready. Yep. Yep. Sounds good. I'll sell everything I have, which is not a lot. So, but I'll see what I can. We can break off. But but hey, mate, I have a podcast. Maybe there you go. Work. There you go. Um. All right. So before you know, kind of wrap up. It's, it's been a little over, almost an hour. Um. Uh. You use tips. Um. Do's and don'ts. What would you for both for each of the lifts? Mm-hmm. Um. A tip to do that you would like to see. For squat, bench, and deadlift, and then tip, don't do. Like, what do you see? Please don't do that <laughs> um, for each of them as well. Yeah. Uh, so, let's see. Don't do, I think let's start with that actually, because I can think of one on top of my head. Don't do, don't try to emulate your idols. Don't try to emulate somebody that's much stronger that you think you should be lifting as much because nine out of ten times you're not going to be able to lift exactly the same way as them because like i mentioned before you're just not built the same way or you're just not at the same level so train at your own pace especially if you're starting out new pick up as much advice as you can from more experienced people get some coaching if you can and really it just comes down to learning what's best for your own body and so for each squat bench and deadlift i think there's not really that much I would like I'm personally like this is why everybody that asks me for coaching I say I don't offer coaching yet because I'm nowhere near experienced enough like I'm I still consider myself super new to the sport I know nothing about programming I really barely know anything about like technique unless it's like deadlift like at the end of the day like i'm the deadlift specialist and so just because i've tweaked and gone through my own form so many times and like i'm super nitpicky i'll record myself on the side front every angle to just see what works and what feels good and so i think for all three lifts do constantly tweak your technique your methods if something feels off or if something feels stronger one way than another don't be afraid to constantly change something like that i'm still learning especially on deadlifts i'm still learning what works for me my if you have been following me since three years ago my technique at 
then looks completely different than what I do now. Like I was narrow stance, I was jerking the bar, I was basically just breaking my back. Like I'm surprised it didn't break, but like snapping it off the ground, trying to pull it up. It worked for a while, but I know that longevity wise, that wouldn't have been great. So it's completely transformed, and I'm still tweaking everything little by little every single day, moving my foot out one inch, turning my toes in a little bit, turning a toe out, putting my back straighter. So, like, don't be afraid to constantly change things and constantly just, like, if it feels better or feels like well, you'll find something, times you'll make a change and you get weaker, sometimes you'll feel stronger. But really, at the end of the day, it takes a, it's a long experience. It's a marathon. Like, you can't expect to be a, the strongest person after one year it's it's basically just have patience if you have a coach listen to them if you are just in it to slowly see progression yourself as long as you put in the work you definitely see that yep it's like when we started training we said we like this sport because it's a very clear metric Mm -hmm. you know it's like five pounds more it's five pounds more yep and that's don't get in your head about (laughs) Like, it should be 20 pounds more. It's yeah. Like, oh, five pounds more, five pounds more. And <laughs> yeah. we'll get five pounds more after that. I think we get lost sometimes and, you know, a little depressed seeing Instagram videos of, you know, Russell squatting 700 pounds or, like, Sean benching 450 pounds. Yeah. But at the end of the day, like, you're comparing to yourself what you did last week. And if you feel better than you did last week or if you're stronger than last year, that's a win like at the end of the day it's about your own progress it's not about how you measure up to other people like that's only gonna make yourself feel upset and you should do that like you should feel good about how far you've come since the beginning and you're only gonna progress more as long as you put more work into it yeah it's like it's like you can't be mad it's like you get an A in a biology like exam <laughs> and then you're mad that you don't read genetic code yeah. like you do. it doesn't work yeah there's a huge gap between that and then that yeah and then there's a study I posted earlier that shows like the the age for the top performance in powerlifting on average is like 35 years old so most people in powerlifting is not there yet that you know are on Instagram because they're usually generation X and they're usually in the early 20s so don't worry about it you have 10 years at least to make the gains yeah but not only that a lot of those guys like Sean um, you know when I talked to him he started lifting at 15 yeah so <laughs> yeah. he's 26 going on 27 I think I believe he said now that's 10 years mm-hmm. of lifting 11 yeah. years of lifting like yeah. consistently and being in sports um, like not taking time off you know I'm sure he, you know whatever but for the most part he was training so it's like we only use yeah they're, they're in their early 20s but they started Mm-hmm. 15 16 17 right um and so don't don't just look people need to not look at that you need to know like now there's there's years mm-hmm. oh yeah for sure and look at people like jen thompson who are is still increasing her maxes every single year and hitting prs so it's it's a long journey and don't be afraid when it takes longer than you originally expected like you will continuously see progression it's one of those sports that that's why i love it like as long as you put into the work you're gonna get better yep 100 yep all right well i think that's a good spot to wrap up i really appreciate you both well first of all like letting me train with you um coming down which was awesome and then being on the show man I yeah really thanks it. for having me any anytime um i always love to have you and <laughs> Yeah, hopefully we can you know train again soon, and let's do that hot pot. <laughs> Pre- that, I'm, that's actually all I really want. Yep, same. <laughs> Got to go get some food. Yeah, let's do do that because we we worked hard. We squatted, we benched, and now mm. we podcasted, and now we should eat. So, <laughs> yep. um, so thank you, thank you guys for listening. As always, I'm Nicholas with Mr. Yang Suren, and this is the Nerds Who Live podcast. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> my